Leningrad, 1941. The jewel of Russia, broken. In September 1941, the German war machine surrounded the former capital and quite literally choked the city until it surrendered. By the time the Nazis marched into the cold streets of Leningrad, the populace was already starving. Survivors report that the citizens of Leningrad were so desperate for scraps of food that people began to use sawdust to make bread. Some resorted to cannibalism. They said it was unwise to search the streets for food after dark, lest you become food yourself. The old Russian capital was a picture of hell in an already hellish period of history. But as infinite as humanity's capacity for brutality, there were those in Leningrad who demonstrated its audacious hope. These were everyday citizens, soldiers, and those who believed that, at the end of it all, something would still stand among the ruin, that pieces of Russia's great art and history might remain intact. Some of these people were the directors and staff of Catherine Palace, named after one of the country's most celebrated rulers. And all throughout its gilded halls, those who dared to stay behind went about quickly protecting and hiding something of such tremendous value, so deeply emblematic of Russia's artistic achievements that they were willing to sacrifice their own lives to protect it. Blackened with smoke, the skies rained ash over Germany's army group north as they marched into Leningrad. The military had initiated Operation Barbarossa. And like all things Nazi, this invasion of the Soviet Union was named after a legendary Teutonic figure, a former emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, to which Adolf Hitler considered himself successor. Back in Berlin, the Fuhrer was so confident of this conquest that he had already printed out invitations to a celebration of Leningrad's fall, hours before the city limits were breached. About 20 or so miles away from the defensive perimeter set up by the Russians, the army group north came to the suburb of Tsarkoye Selo. Catherine Palace, standing tall, blue, and gold, rose up around the woodland. The Nazis battered down its doors and stormed the palace, creeping through its dim corridors like ants in search of plunder for Hitler's private collections. And they certainly had plenty of palace to cover. 325 meters, in fact. But all they found there were outlines in dust. The palace staff, having only just fled, were able to carry almost every painting, every priceless vase and piece of furniture that they could take with them across the barricades of Leningrad. This left the Nazis with a conundrum. They had to turn up something to show for their efforts. And there was a rumor that somewhere inside the castle was one treasure so priceless that it could fund Hitler's ambitions twice over. So the Nazis combed the corridors until they finally stopped inside a suspiciously large chamber. Whatever had been done to secure the room had been done so in a hurry, as a few objects of worth, including a lacquer chest, remained. And while these pieces alone were worth their weight in gold, they still weren't enough. This gawking and admiration of an otherwise empty room was interrupted, perhaps, by an abrupt attention-getting cough. 
Nervous heads turned toward the doorway at the intrusion of a gentleman named Count Solms Laubach, a so-called arts protection officer, which was just a fancy Nazi name for a high-ranking art thief. Laubach had been dispatched to Leningrad for a specific reason. He had promised the Fuhrer Russian plunder. Only reflections from the wall's gilded trim provided the cold, shell-shocked platoon with a source of light. In the dusk, they watched the Count as he faced the nearest wall, his eyes narrowing. And after a moment's consideration, he removed his leather gloves and dragged his hand across the surface of this curiously plain wallpaper. It was fresh, barely dry even. Then Laubach barked a command, strip the walls bare. With the few tools at their disposal, the Germans tore the decorated paper from the wall, strip by strip, corner to corner. And as they peeled back paper and insulation, they found under the surface, not plaster or wood or stone, but something else. The Count then called for light, so candles were swiftly lit. And as the candlelight filled the chamber, the room itself appeared to glow, as if on fire. The army stood back, silenced by what lay before them. Wall-to-wall panels of golden, gleaming amber, of all shades, arranged in an intricate mosaic. The Germans now found themselves inside history's largest piece of jewelry, what some called the eighth wonder of the world. And then their faces melted off. Just kidding, but that would have been cool. In total, the Amber Room took almost 70 years to complete, and stood for three centuries. The Nazis ever efficient, managed to tear it all down in just under 36 hours. And where it is now, nobody can say for sure. So let me tell you about a jerk named Adolf Hitler. Turns out, not a super cool guy. You see, movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Last Crusade, though fictional, were onto something. Hitler was into acquiring artifacts of renown, whether legendary or real, and he had plans to house them all under one roof. The Führer Museum was intended to be a massive palace filled with art, artifacts, and treasure, all forcibly taken from the countries that would fall, one by one, to the power of the Third Reich. Just imagine the Mona Lisa, the Hope Diamond, the British Crown Jewels, and hey, probably the Ark of the Covenant, all inside the same giant museum. The Führer Museum would function as Hitler's private collection of everything, right in his hometown of Linz, Austria and he would rule over it as its sole director. The Amber Room would have no doubt been one of this museum's prized collections. But before we delve deep into the history of the Amber Room, let's talk about what it was made out of. Contrary to popular belief, amber is not actually a gem, but fossilized tree resin. And a good lot of it can be found on the seafloor, 
where embedded amber deposits from petrified tree bark are often kicked up by the churning of the waves. Even when trapping the remains of long-dead insects and, in some cases, pieces of dinosaur, amber has always held a mystical allure. The ancients believed amber was symbolic of love and marriage, contracts, understanding, and keeping peace. Though used throughout the centuries in jewelry and art, amber is also notoriously hard to sculpt and shape. Gemstones don't dry out and lose their malleability over time, but amber being a resin, tends to dry out and even crumble. While amber can be found in many places throughout the world, Baltic amber famously washes up not far from where our story truly begins, in Prussia, which is now part of Germany. Queen Sophia Charlotte of Hanover was a headstrong ruler, briefly involved in politics at a time when it was not common for a woman of nobility to do so, and fiercely independent. She was said to be so intimidating, even the charming and powerful Peter the Great found himself at a loss of words in her presence. The King of Prussia, Frederick I, was madly in love with her. Unfortunately, that feeling was not reciprocated, though they did marry. Sophia Charlotte lived among her own court in an entirely separate castle, and the king was only allowed to visit her by invitation alone. And yet, their marriage was solid. Some couples just find out how to make it work, I guess. It helps, of course, to be king. Desperate to win his wife's affections, Frederick turned to an artist who knew how to make use of a certain precious resin associated with love, marriage, and trust. At Sophia's behest, Frederick commissioned the artist Andreas Schluter to craft a cabinet of amber stone cuts arranged like puzzle pieces. Schluter had help from a renowned Danish fabricator, Gottfried Wolfram, as well as input from amber craftsman Ernst Skacht and Gottfried Turo. Whether or not the cabinet was fully completed isn't entirely known, but the amber panels themselves ended up in another royal house entirely, Berlin City Palace. The panels were installed in a small sitting room to be properly displayed for the admiration of guests. There was talk of expanding the work, but these aspirations died with the king himself in 1706. Now the king's son, Friedrich Wilhelm, was far more concerned in expanding his country's martial prowess than its artistic output. He saw no practical use for the mosaics and decided to reallocate funds to more appropriate channels. But such a work of art refused to be ignored. Peter the Great, as you might guess from the name, was an ambitious man, and he had quite a few plans for Russia and the greater Baltic territories. But even a nation as powerful as Russia needed some help. King Friedrich Wilhelm found it in the best interests of Prussia to cozy up to Europe's dominating power, and so he invited Peter to the Great Berlin Palace. There, in a certain sitting room, the great Tsar fell in love not with a woman, but with a jewel. Friedrich Wilhelm saw the enchanting effect that the amber panels had on the great ruler, and seizing upon the opportunity, pretty much said to Peter, oh, that old thing? You could just take it. So was forged an alliance in amber, an alliance that tragically would not last. In 1717, the panels of amber and their unused shards were carefully disassembled and packaged among 18 crates, they traveled a long distance to St. Petersburg, where they came to rest in the Winter Palace. But Amber was tricky to work with, and its crafting known to only a select few. 
Apparently, Peter the Great didn't get this memo, as even his greatest artisans were at a loss on how to reassemble the pieces the right way. In 18 packed crates, the fragments of the Amber Room waited in darkness, and would continue to wait for another 26 years. Peter would never see it completed. In time, Russia would inherit a new ruler, and she preferred to live life as large as possible. So when it came time for the freshly crowned Empress Elizabeth to create the third Winter Palace, because you can never have too many, I guess, she knew that she needed to make a strong first impression on the aristocracy. Elizabeth's reign was marked by lavish parties, often several times a week, that would have and should have bankrupt the country if not for the fact that the fun-loving empress's expensive tastes demanded miles and miles of improved infrastructure. So in a way, Elizabeth made trickle-down economics actually work for Russia. Other things to note about the empress are that she may have invented cosplay, and she herself was very fond of drag, dressing up as a man at her own costume parties, of which there were many. The Empress was also extraordinarily obsessed with being the prettiest face in the room, and put into effect a series of strict laws dictating what her court could and could not wear. She once had a fellow noblewoman lashed across the face for daring to wear the same dress as her. Elizabeth's love of art and all things expensive are what made the Empress a great patron of Russia's cultural capital, and it's perhaps what she's best known for. So when it came time to decorate her new palace, Elizabeth turned to her family's records and discovered that a whole lot of amber was just laying around in mothballs gathering dust. She decided to make good use of it, which is putting it rather lightly, as we'll soon find out. In 1743, Elizabeth ordered her beloved Italian architect Bartolomeo Rastrelli to install the amber panels in a large chamber of the palace. There was just one problem. There was a whole lot of chamber and not a whole lot of amber to complete the project. Rastrelli thought quickly and decided to use the amber as wall pieces, surrounding them with golden carvings, candle holders, and mirrors. Still, he eventually ran out of the precious resin. Knowing the empress and her specific tastes, he brought in fake amber instead to complete the job. Whether or not Elizabeth was fooled or just said, eh, good enough, is history's best guess. Many snowy Russian winters passed. The amber room shifted locations several times before finally coming to rest at Catherine Palace, the royal family's summer retreat. Here, the room was expanded, and highly skilled craftsmen fashioned statuettes and furnishings of amber to match the decor. By 1763, Elizabeth had died, but her immediate descendant and daughter was hardly obscure. After all, there is a reason Catherine II is better known as Catherine the Great. At the palace of her namesake, the new empress renovated the amber room, deciding that the amber panels should cover the chamber in its entirety. In total, over 450 kilograms of amber fragments were used in the completion of the Great Project, which had commenced over 60 years ago, expanding right alongside Russia's might. By 1770, the Amber Room was at last complete. Aside from general maintenance throughout the 1800s, the room remained relatively unchanged. Though the Russian monarchy crumbled in the Bolshevik uprising of 1917, the Amber Room did not. It would remain a fixture of Catherine Palace for another 24 years before the country that first gifted the room, in its nascent form, decided to take it back by force.
1941, World War II. The already fragile pact of non-aggression between the two dominant forces of Europe, Germany and Russia, was shattered. The German army, being nobody's fools, quickly uncovered the amber room behind a slapdash redecorating job in Leningrad's Catherine Palace. What is known for sure is this. The amber room was taken apart, piece by piece, under the watchful eye of Count Solms Laubach. Laubach was one of the many art historians that Hitler had recruited to fill his Führer Museum with priceless loot. But seeing as there was a war going on, construction of the Grand Museum had been put on the back burner. In the interim, there were still plenty of other buildings in Germany in which display Nazi plunder. By Laubach's supervision, German soldiers and workers carefully dismantled and shipped the panels of the Amber Room and its many treasures to the then-German city of Königsberg. It was put on display at Königsberg Castle under the eye of its director, Alfred Rode. But there is reason to believe that the Amber Room did not make it to Königsberg in its entirety. But more on that later. Fortunately for everyone in this story, unless you were a Nazi, that is, the forces of Germany were crushed by the Allied powers in 1944. This alliance included the Red Army of Russia, who managed to take back their city of Leningrad through a brutal war of attrition. But Nazis, historically known for, well, being the worst, decided to gut and torch the interior of Catherine Palace shortly before they fled. Even if the amber panels were successfully returned, there would be no actual room in which to put them back together. Meanwhile, back at Königsberg, the Germans suddenly found themselves in a precarious situation. With the Allied forces closing in, the only way out of the city was by sea. In a righteous twist of irony, the Germans had little time to ship away their plunder and loot. They had to act fast. But after so many decades of wear and tear, the panels of the Amber Room had finally become brittle. The Nazis carelessly ripped the inlays from the wall, coating the floor with crumbling resin, and what they could salvage was crated up and placed inside the castle basement, where it would await its imminent exodus out of the country. Whether that exodus actually took place is unknown, because Königsberg Castle, and most likely the Amber Room itself, was destroyed in an Allied air raid. The final moments of the eighth wonder of the world took place in the obscurity of a musty basement crushed by tons and tons of collapsing granite and mortar. The grandest treasure in Russia, and perhaps all of Europe, was gone. Just like that. Or was it? Certain historians and armchair conspiracy theorists alike believe that the Amber Room may still exist. And I stress the word may. When the dust of World War II finally settled and word of the Amber Room's disappearance got out, everyone on every side of the war was eager to point fingers at each other for its loss. There are some who believe that the Germans did in fact manage to smuggle the crates of amber out of Königsberg Castle before its collapse. If this is true, then the Amber Room had to be taken to sea, possibly by submarine, but most likely by boat. After that, things start to get murky again. Some accounts say that the ship carrying the Amber was sunk by torpedo or bomb by the Allies. If this is really the case, then the Amber Room truly returned to its origins at the bottom of the sea floor. It's a very poetic conclusion to such a fantastic tale, and certainly more romantic than being crushed under the weight of a Nazi castle. 
If the Amber Room wasn't smuggled out by sea, then it would stand to reason that the Nazis managed to ship the cargo out by land, by convoy, or by train. And there is a popularly held belief that somewhere buried in the forests of Poland lies a train stocked with plundered artifacts, gold, and possibly the Amber Room. To this day, no evidence of the train has been uncovered, despite the best efforts of treasure hunters. From a historical perspective, who actually destroyed the Amber Room seems pretty clear-cut. The Nazis put the room at risk the moment they had it transported to Königsberg Castle, and the Allies were just trying to drive the Germans out with the only means available to them. But some historians believe the castle was destroyed by the forces of Russia, the very same people who tried to protect the Amber Room in the first place. It is a truth universally acknowledged that the Soviet Union was not the most forthcoming government in world history. And when the USSR finally collapsed in 1991, a lot of very interesting, previously hidden documents were leaked to the general populace. Allegedly, one of these reports concerned Königsberg Castle and its ultimate fate. According to this theory, the Red Army absolutely torched the castle, unaware that their nation's greatest treasure lay crated up in the basement. Amber, unfortunately, does have a melting point. When Soviet leader Joseph Stalin's inner circle realized his own men had just destroyed a priceless symbol of Russian pride, they were understandably furious. But Soviets were not one to admit mistakes. It was best swept under the rug. And that is where the truth remained, until the end of the 20th century. The Red Army hypothesis is supported by first-hand accounts of a German bartender who worked at the Königsberg Castle bar. Yes, there was a bar inside the castle, and even better, it was located in the torture chamber. At the beginning of April 1946, the Red Army descended upon the castle while its skeleton crew, understandably fearing for their lives, hid inside the basement. The Russians, in their mercy, let them go. And after this brief occupation, the bartender returned to Königsberg and was told by the castle's director that the Russians had burnt down the halls. If the Russians were intentionally or unintentionally behind the destruction of their own legacy, then they did a great job of covering it up the best way possible. Armchair speculators claim that the Russians deliberately propagated the rumors of the Amber Room's continued existence as a red herring to divert blame. Perhaps this cultural guilt is what drove the Soviet Union to commission an authentic replica of the Amber Room in 1979. The project was meant for installation in a restored Catherine Palace, which, as we know, lost most of its interior during the war. But this undertaking proved just as difficult as the room's initial creation. Amber craftsmanship hadn't exactly gone on to become a booming industry after the 18th century, and even back then, artisans with amber-cutting knowledge were already in short supply. 300 years later, they were virtually non-existent. Ancient techniques had to be unearthed and learned by modern artisans, and since there were no surviving schematics or plans for a room that had gone through countless additions and modifications, the only design the Russian artists could rely on were a few scant photographs of the room shortly before its dismantling by the German army. Towards the end of the 1980s, the reconstruction of the Amber Room became something of a white elephant for a slowly unraveling communist government. And with Amber itself in short supply, it appeared that the new room would remain forever unfinished. But what of the rumors surrounding its predecessor? Theories concerning the Amber Room's continued existence had died down shortly after the war, and it wasn't until the 90s that they began to crop up again. In the early days of a post-Soviet Russia, President Boris Yeltsin was invited on a diplomatic visit to Germany, which was dealing with its own set of post-Soviet predicaments. 
There, Yeltsin boldly proclaimed that he knew the whereabouts of the Amber Room, which he said was hidden away somewhere in East Germany. More than just knowing where it was, he wanted it back. Understandably, this caused some drama. Germany still retained almost $70 billion in Russian artwork, stolen by the Nazis during World War II. So Yeltsin may have had his reasons for being so pushy, but political theorists believe that Yeltsin's proclamation was nothing but a brash attempt to help secure reparations, because there was no follow-up. If this was all just a bluff, it didn't work. Yeltsin did not get his amber room back, and his only success was in kicking the hornet's nest of conspiracy theorists. Then, in 1997, a startling discovery gave merit to the Russian president's wild claims. In Potsdam, Germany, art theft detectives arrested a prominent lawyer trying to pawn off an unusual mosaic for a fetching sum of $2.5 million. He said that the mosaic was a family heirloom that had come to him by way of his father, a German officer who had been stationed in where else but Königsberg Castle. After a meticulous examination of the artifact, experts proclaimed that the panel was none other than one of the four Florentine mosaics that hung on the walls of the Amber Room. Shortly after this, an art restoration specialist, perhaps fearing for his own innocence, came forward with another interesting revelation. He claimed that he had repaired one of the iconic lacquered chests of the Amber Room back in the 1970s. He believed that his client had no clue what they owned and was too afraid of East Germany's brutal regime to report his findings. He might have also feared the dubious Amber Room curse, a cobbled together and shaky conspiracy theory that connects numerous unexplained deaths to those who went searching for the Amber Room. Alfred Rode, the director of Königsberg Castle during its occupation and personal overseer of the Amber Room's installation, was captured by the Soviet's KGB shortly after the castle fell. According to various reports, the KGB had seized some of the director's correspondences and believed from his wording that the Amber Room had survived the bombing intact. But even if that were the case, Rode wasn't talking. Before the KGB could interrogate him further, they received a death certificate stating that both Rode and his wife had died suddenly of typhus, which had overtaken the occupied city. The suspicious KGB went to the morgue to inspect the bodies for themselves, and there they found nothing. If the bodies had even been there in the first place, they were now gone, and the doctor who signed the death certificates was mysteriously absent as well. Conspiracy theorists believe that Rode was tasked by the Nazi remnant with relocating the Amber Room yet again to a mysterious, unspecified location. They also believe that a shadowy cabal is behind the deaths of others who have gotten too close to the truth. Shortly after the war, a Russian KGB agent named Gusev died in a suspicious car accident after he was revealed as an informant for a journalist doing a story on the Amber Room mystery. In 1987, a treasure hunter and former German soldier named George Stein believed he was close to finding the Amber Room when he turned up dead, brutally murdered in the dark forest of Bavaria, found nude with his stomach cut open by surgical knife. But I couldn't find any death records for Agusev or George Stein, which, to be fair, could be due to the fact that these deaths allegedly occurred before the internet, and, if factual, were likely published in German or Russian. Back to the more plausible mystery. 
How did a confirmed mosaic panel and lacquer chest of the Amber Room survive the war? Art historians believe that either piece was stolen by Nazi soldiers, hoping to skim the top off of Hitler's fortunes. Their greed and treachery may not have earned them any real payout in the long run, but it was definitely a boon for history. The discovery of the panel and chest also reignited speculation that the Amber Room must still be in existence, somehow, somewhere. Curse or no curse. Another criminal investigation in 2012 presented even more theories and a new suspect. Cornelius Gerlitt was a Munich resident who kept to himself and refused even his closest relative's entry into his apartment. It's easy to chalk up his attitude to just being an ornery old man, but it turns out that Gerlitt may have had good reason for being so secretive. Cornelius was an art historian, just like his father before him, and Cornelius Gerlitt the Sr. had once attracted the attention of the United States of America's Art Looting Intelligence Unit for dealing in artifacts that were stolen by the Nazis. They say death and taxes are inevitable, and in 2012, an inquiry into the younger Gerlitt's taxes resulted in a warrant for the government to search the uncooperative German's apartment. What investigators found there included an original Renoir, Degas, Matisse, and some other odd 1,406 artwork worth an estimated 1 billion euros. Gerlitz's reaction to this raid was to tell both the law and the media that the artwork was acquired legally and to leave him alone. Naturally, the authorities had serious questions. Perhaps the most shocking part of this story, Cordelius Gerlitz was never charged or arrested in conjunction with the missing artwork. In 2014, Gerlitz started complying with authorities and revealed that he was keeping a few off-site residencies that held even more art. When this came to light, rumors popped up that Gerlitz, a man in the possession of some of Europe's most famous pieces of missing priceless art just laying around his apartment, might know the whereabouts of the Amber Room. But then Gerlitz died, and any further information went with him. There is no satisfying conclusion to this treasure hunt. That said, the trail hasn't gone cold entirely, and if the Amber Room is still to be found, it may have ended up rather close to where it was forcibly relocated. The little town of Wegerzewo, Poland, holds a curious remnant of Nazi occupation, a bunker on the edge of the woods that has been converted into the Mamerki Museum. The Mamerki purports to be one of the most well-preserved Nazi bunkers in existence, a series of tunnels that once hosted the German land forces. It is here that Colonel Klaus Stauffenberg planned an ambitious coup involving the assassination of Adolf Hitler. In the 1950s, a former Nazi watchman of the Mamerki barracks recounted his wartime experiences to a Polish squadron. On a cold night in 1944, the guard witnessed a heavily armed convoy unloading a curiously large pallet of crates into the bunker. But he assumed this could have been anything. Gold, artwork, Hitler's spaceship, who knows? For many years, the Mamerki watchman's account was interpreted as nothing more than a war story. Then, in 2016, directors of the Mamerki Museum decided to employ a state-of-the-art geothermic radar. They wanted to chart the land around the bunker, hoping to uncover any artifacts that may be hiding among the soil. What they found instead was something unexpected. The radar display revealed a room hidden behind a wall of the museum. At six and a half feet long and ten feet wide, the hidden chamber could easily hide a substantial amount of cargo. 
a whole amber room size, if you will. The directors of the Mermerki were stunned. There were no extant records concerning this room, and the museum had been untouched since the Germans fled the area. So who exactly had sealed up the room, and why? Though nothing of note was found, a similar bunker was uncovered some distance away from this location. The 220-pound concrete door is blocked with a large tree growing over the entrance, which means the site has likely remained sealed since 1945. As of 2019's re-recording of this original episode from 2017, the Mamurki Museum is still in talks with the Polish government to clear the trunk and excavate the site. If the Amber Room survived the ensuing decades after World War II, it's probably in an unrecognizable state. Eyewitness reports say that the Amber Room was already deteriorating by the time it was stolen. It's sad to think of one of history's masterpieces rotting away in some hidden mineshaft in Germany or lost in a bunker in Poland, but this may in fact be the reality. In 2003, the city of St. Petersburg celebrated its 300th birthday, nearly three centuries after Andreas Schluter placed the first amber tile in a panel destined for a queen's wardrobe. Though funding for the recreation of the Amber Room stalled in the early 90s, the Russians clung to the hope that Catherine Palace would be restored to its former glory, and its most famous chamber recreated. But Russia had just gone through one of the most dramatic governmental transitions Europe and Asia had ever experienced, and there simply wasn't enough money to complete the project. That was until a powerful German firm donated $3.5 million towards the restoration, enough to at last finish the work. On June 3, 2003, Russian President Vladimir Putin and then-German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder stood side by side and inaugurated the new Amber Room in a celebrated joint ceremony. Politically, the people of Germany and Russia interpreted this as an act of reconciliation. If the Amber Room had served as a symbol of a Russo-Germanic alliance some 300-odd years ago, then it stood to reason that there was no better time than the anniversary of one of Russia's most beloved cities to commemorate King Friedrich Wilhelm's diplomatic gesture. To this day, the recreation of the Amber Room is on display and open to the public in Catherine Palace in St. Petersburg. You can look at the pictures of the room for yourself online, or better yet, visit if you get the chance. We'll obviously never know how faithful a recreation it is, just as we may never know what really happened to its predecessor. I like to imagine that to bask in the glow of the Amber Room is the closest thing we have to stepping into a piece of the past, frozen in time and perfectly preserved, just like the jewel that lines its walls. Relic is written and narrated by me, Maxwell. If you like this remaster of our first episode, you can rate and review Relic in iTunes and like our page on Facebook. 
We also have a Patreon that has exclusive episodes, including the pilot episodes to my Paranormal Mystery podcast from 2015, collaborations with other podcasters, and Tales from the Reliquary, which looks at weirder Lost Treasures that can't really fit a full episode. Connect with me on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod and email me at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. Next time... Cut from a legendary piece of jade, China's heirloom seal of the realm was the physical manifestation of the emperor's will. For generations, it helped dictate the laws that guided one of the world's oldest civilizations through its most turbulent times, until it was lost. Where is the jade seal, said to be worth more than a hundred cities? The adventure continues 